Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Today's sponsor is actually my own holiday gift guide, which you all must check out at zibbyowens.com slash gift shop. Zibbyowens.com slash gift shop. I have so many amazing things organized by all the things moms don't have time to do, like eat, sleep, work out. I don't know. There are 10 different categories and they're amazing and read. There's so many reading gifts and writing gifts. Um, my daughter's here with me today and I was asking her some of her favorites from my list. What do you think? A hydro flask. And uh, you loved all the sugary treats, right? Oh yeah. Anything with candy. Like Sugar Wish and Nini's treats. I love Nini's treats. Um, and the Function of Beauty shampoos. Oh, I, love I heard about them through you. So Function of and Beauty shampoos. Dylan I saw. Dylan's candy bar. Amazing. Um, so go check it out. We have discount codes for almost everything at this point, and some are still pending, but go to zibbyowens.com slash gift shop and get some great gifts for the people you love and pick up a few for yourself. Why not stop into the gift shop? Rachel Bloom is best known as the co-creator and star of the CW musical dramedy Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. For her performance as Rebecca Bunch, Rachel won a Golden Globe, a Critics' Choice Award, and a CA Award. She has also been featured in the New York Times Magazine, Elle, Allure Entertainment Weekly, Time, Psychology Today, and Backstage. In addition to other acting award nominations, Rachel is a four-time Emmy nominee for her songwriting of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and other notable writing. As a singer, Rachel was featured in Trolls World Tour as the hard rock troll Barb with many other voiceover credits. Oh my gosh, my kids are obsessed with Trolls World Tour. Her book, I Want to Be Where the Normal People Are, is a collection of laugh-out-loud funny essays that cover everything from her love of Disney to OCD and depression to female friendships. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to talk about your book, I Want to Be Where the Normal People Are, which I feel like I should sing in the Little Mermaid-esque. <laughs> I want to be- Feel free to. <laughs> I won't subject you to that. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So Rachel, can you tell listeners what I Want to Be Where the Normal People Are is about? What inspired you to write this memoir about your basically life and, and why you did it and why now? Well, it's really a collection of stories and essays and kind of like uh, comedic pieces about my relationship with normalcy. And it, it's kind of like a personal stories are the jumping off point of, of each part. And then I kind of extrapolate based on the emotions of those stories to do like comedic pieces, comedic essays. Like for instance, there's the story of the night I won a golden globe, but as described by my dog, because even winning a golden globe, which is such a kind of societal marker of like, you fit in, I want to have some perspective and remember that, you know, a dog doesn't care. So it goes through kind of my relationship with normalcy through childhood up until now, basically. And I appreciated the picture of the dog with the Golden Globe that you included. That was also a nice, a nice touch. Thank you. Know, you. Yes. To really ground us in the normalcy 
question mark of that. Awesome. <laughs> I have to say your middle school experience gave me like PTSD from my own middle school experience. And like, I'm sure everybody has had a moment in middle school where they feel like they don't fit in or they're not part of the group. And you're the boyfriend that you had, or not even really a boyfriend, but the guy you followed around all, all the time. It's going to sound terrible. I think his name was Ethan. If I'm, yeah. And how, well, t- maybe just tell me the, the story again from the horse's mouth as it were, and, and how experiences like that where you're just, you're wanting so much just to have a normal relationship and it backfires. Tell me a little, a bit more about that. Yeah. Well, it was the first crush I ever had. And I remember my feelings for Ethan being just as real and passionate as any feelings of love or infatuation I had as an adult, but I was a dork and he didn't really fit in either. So the more I tried to be around him, the lower it made his social standing. And so he started insulting me to try to just get me to go away and also like fit in with the other kids who also thought I wasn't cool, but that made me love him more. I can't tell if it made me love him more or if I loved him regardless. And I loved him despite the insulting either way. It, it set a pattern for later relationships, Um, but he was quite mean because I was so clearly in love with him at an age when no one was having these intense feelings of infatuation. Where is Ethan now? Do we know? Have you looked him up? Yeah. I mean, I actually did a conversation. I had a conversation with Ethan for using his real name for this Vulture Fest. I, I did a, Vulture has this, you know, festival of arts and entertainment. And we did, a, we had a conversation and he actually became one of my really good friends in high school. There just wasn't time to write about that in the book. <laughs> to fast forward from your middle school antics to let's just say like you're like a section like an apologetic ode to my former roommates and all of the unresolved issues which by the way I love it's like a poem to yourself thank you you're so funny and I really love how you use like lists and different formats and scripts it's like every you're using the book in a whole new way right it is a book but it's like an art project at the same time, right? <laughs> well, I try to vary it up. I don't really love reading. It has to be a really, really famous person or someone I really admire to read just like a straightforward memoir. I like reading personal stories or especially books that are very personal where, where the format is varied up. So I kind of wrote the book that I would want to read. And also I, I wrote it in a way that I, I would still enjoy writing it because I didn't want to sit down and just write a bunch of personal essays. So it, it was a way, in a way, the the fact that there's one of the chapters is a full musical that you'll yes. actually be able to listen along to on my website when the book comes out, if you want to listen along and read. That was my way of keeping myself entertained. And then the ode to my roommates, which is this apology, I wanted to elevate my apology. I wanted to make it feel almost mythic because I really was a terrible roommate. And I feel like most people come from the vantage point of, oh, I had this terrible roommate, but no, that was me. (laughs) And I feel terrible about it. You are one of the most, I want to say self-critical, but you know, just constantly like it's, it's beyond that. It's like self-flagellating. You're like always so hard on yourself. I feel like in a funny way, but you know, there's always like, little truth to every joke, you know? Well, I want to, I, I, you know, it's a glass houses thing because I definitely bitch about other people in the, in the, in the book and I don't want to get off scot-free. And I think I perhaps in, at times in the book overcompensate by, by being pretty self-flagellating by ju- just to make sure I know that I'm making fun of other people, but, but I'm not perfect. You know, I think I always want to play that other side to cover my bases. 
And is the book sort of reflective of how you think? Like, are you, is this the way you think you're always like onto this and then another thing? And this is the creative interpretation of that. And this is like, it's not as linear, like what you were saying, like, I don't want to just sit down and write a bunch of essays. Is that, that is how I think. That's how you think. Yeah. Yes. That's pretty. There's a, there is a, probably there is a, a smidgen of ADHD in there as my psychiatrist has told me, although he's like, don't get excited. He's like, I know you'll get off on a diagnosis tangent, but yes. And that is just how my mind works. And I I think it also comes from writing sketch comedy for so long and trying to, coming from that sketch brain of, oh, okay, what's a sketch I could do based on this feeling that I'm having? Speaking of your therapist, would you mind if we talked a little about the OCD and the blurting? Please. And because I feel like OCD has been branded sort of all wrong. People think it has to do only with washing your hands and turning things on and off. And, and actually the intrusive thoughts are a huge element of OCD. And it would be very easy to misdiagnose someone who's having that symptom as something completely different or not to worry about or, you know, even annoying or, and so I want parents out there who might be listening also to know that sometimes the intrusive thoughts that your child is having could be this. So tell me a little more about your experience with it. Yeah, I'm so, I'm so glad, especially now as a parent, I'm thinking about it a lot. So what happened was basically in fourth grade, I started getting these intrusive guilty thoughts. I started fixating on things that I thought they I did that were bad that I should feel guilty about. And it was this like gnawing darkness that I, I'd never felt before. And this is around age nine and a half, ten. And I thought that the only way I could relieve myself of these of this guilt was to tell my parents everything. And it was this series of obsessions, obsessive thoughts, and compulsions to tell my parents everything. And my, at the time, my parents had they just thought it was some sort of quirk of adolescence. Because OCD was, yeah, you wash your hands or you check the like the, the burners to make sure the stove isn't on. It was this very specific thing that we thought OCD was. And it's only now as an adult and now kind of consciously that we are starting to realize, and when I say consciously, I think non-therapists are, are starting to understand, oh, no, no, uh, obsessive thoughts and compulsions come in many, many forms. And no one around me understood or could see that I was suffering because it just seemed like I was quirky. And so I'll, I'll hear stories like this in, in other kids. Oh, my kid's having trouble sleeping or they keep bringing this up. And it's not just a, a quirk of childhood or of adolescence. They're suffering. And, and that's something I think writing this book when I was pregnant right before I was becoming a parent was a nice reminder that my child's feelings are valid And they're not, I can't just brush them away with, oh, they're just a a kid or even, oh, they're just a baby. No, these feelings are real. And just because the person feeling them is little doesn't make them less valid. Might not necessitate the decibel level of screaming that accompanies it as a child, I might say. Oh, that's what I mean. Okay. But yes. yes. (laughs) And that's, it applies more to, I think, the future of when my child is, my child's seven and a half months old. Yes. That's what I mean. The loud, of course, blood curling screams, you know. Look, at a certain point, I, I have to put a sweatshirt on her, I have to put sleeves on. The blood curdling screams are, yes, going to happen. I can't not ever put clothes on her. So yes, true. Yes, but I think anybody who has had, you know, any sort of mental health, anything and struggled for a diagnosis and then felt a sense of relief once it had been like, oh, wait, this constellation of of behaviors or thoughts or feelings actually falls into this rubric and there's a treatment for it. Like that's a very great 
feeling. So anyway, not to keep harping yeah. on this, I'm on the board of the Child Mind Institute. I don't know if you've heard of that. I have. Which is great if you have any interest in getting involved or whatever, but it's all about reversing the stigma on childhood mental illness and raising awareness for things like this, like OCD and selective mutism and like just all these things that maybe people don't know as much about and also finding treatments and biomarkers and all the rest. But anyway, not to bring that into it, but I, I just wanted you to know I'm like so on the same page in terms of wanting to raise awareness and helping families get through something that can be challenging both for the child and the parents. Oh, that's so cool that you're on the board of that. I would actually love to learn more information about that. And I wish that had been around or I'd been aware of that when I was a kid. It wasn't around. So don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) How have you felt? Like, I know that having a child often brings up old stuff in your brain and your mind and issues and all of that. How have you adjusted to sort of being a parent and has it raised any unexpected reactions in you in that way? Well, first of all, there's something freeing about putting her needs and her, her happiness above my own. It's actually quite freeing. It actually really helps with things like cognitive behavioral therapy when you're trying to just focus on the present and not engaging in anxious thoughts as much it really helps with that. Around the time I'd finished the first draft of the book, I gave birth. And around the time I was getting induced and giving birth among everything else that was happening, I was having some intrusive thoughts again. And there were, they were kind of unspecific. It was just this almost the thought and the gut feeling at this point are one and the same. It was just this feeling of my anxiety was amped up. And so it, it latches onto these little thoughts. And it was weird to be writing about that while going through that again, during a big life event, but coming out coming out the other side of this one. And because I had to be present for a baby, but because I was also writing about it, it helped me realize, oh, yep, this is just a part of how my mind works sometimes. And I just, I have to be there for her. And that's what matters. And I'll just ride this wave. But being a mom is more important. Wow. Well, that's amazing. So in terms of writing this book, how long did it take to do? Like, when did you do it? How did you fit it in? with all of your other stuff. I know you're also, and like, what other big projects do you have sort of in the hopper? This is like 15 questions in one question. I'm like, no, no, it's fine. So I had had a book deal since 20, I mean, it was like 2017. I got it when I was filming Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I started brainstorming and, and, and slowly writing the book for the next year or so, but I didn't really get started earnestly until August, September of last year, right when I was pregnant, because that's when I had time because Crazy Ex-Girlfriend was done. We'd performed at Radio City Music Hall. I'd toured in London. And finally, I was back and ready to write the book. And then I got pregnant. So definitely the first part of writing the book was also a good distraction from nausea. But I wrote it from about September of 2019 until March 2020, with then some significant changes done April, May. And would you do it again? Like, did you enjoy any of it? Yeah, I did. It was hard. It's hard and it's scary because it's just you. I can't hide behind a character. At least I chose not to. You know, it's nonfiction. My only co-writer was my editor. And editors are really the unofficial co-writers of every book. But still, it's putting so much of yourself out there. And I choose to be so vulnerable. It's putting myself out there in a way no one asked me to do or expected me to do. And then plus, it's a lot of words. So there were pieces that were cut, but like when you cut a, you know, when a song was cut from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, I mean, that was still a lot of work, but that was, I don't know, maybe 
50 words, 100 words. I don't know. I can't think of how many words are in a song, but you're talking about cutting 500 to 1,000 words. There's a lot of stuff that I worked on that's not in the book. It's, it's hard. It's writing a book is really hard. <laughs> and then as far as other things, working on movies and TV, no, no more books coming in the near future. Honestly, doing press for a book, especially when I'm not doing a book tour, takes a lot of time. <laughs> so that's what's in the hopper is doing press for the book. But I'm working on a, a musical using songs from the late 90s, early 2000s to explore nostalgia of that time. I'm pitching a sketch show and still, you know, figuring out this new normal that is both COVID and having a new baby. It's actually probably, well, not that there's ever anything good about the COVID era, but I feel like anytime I had, I have four kids and like, like, whoa. Yeah. And I'm still standing sort of, I'm sitting now, but you know what I mean? Oh, you look great. And your house looks immaculate. Thank you. Yes. I try not to let them in here. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. You're only seeing this little sliver and like normally they're like walking on top of the couch around there. But yeah, the shelves get touched that much. But why was I saying that? Something about after every kid. Oh, the silver lining. Yes. I completely agree. I was completely isolated from the world and my schedule was like so different and everyone else was zoom, zoom, zooming around and like not, I shouldn't have used that word. Everybody else was running around <laughs> super busy and I was at home and, you know, you're being at home, obviously everybody's at home. So I guess there's some synergies in, in everybody else's lifestyle, but <laughs> yeah, I give birth in late March, which is when quarantine started. So as, as we went into having a newborn, it felt like the rest of the world also had a newborn. Yes. Cause people were talking about how time made no sense anymore. Everything was upside down. And that's what having a newborn is. So the time, as far as timing, yes, very stressful to have a child during a pandemic, but the aftermath, as far as just the schedule of having a newborn worked out very well. And I'm sure everybody like asks you about this. And so I hate to, you know, ask, but just because I don't know a ton of people who've won Golden Globes, I have, I'm just like curious. <laughs> I know you wrote about it and thanks to your dog and everything like that, but <laughs> I'm really curious, like, what happened the next day? Like what happens the day after you win a Golden Globe? Do you get a thousand emails? Like does, do you feel like life is exploding? Was there any point when you were like, oh, I kind of miss not having all this attention? I mean, I know you already had attention because of your career, but do you ever just wish like you didn't or not? The day after is so cool. And I've gone through that day after a couple times now with the Golden Globe and then the day after my Emmy win last September. I got a big brunch because I'd been up late the night before. You're hungover. So there's always a big brunch, a ton of emails. The good thing is I don't feel in I don't feel like I have to get back to everyone in those emails the day of. The day after the Golden Globe specifically. I wasn't filming, but there was work was still happening and me getting the Golden Globe essentially saved the show. I mean, we, I needed to at least get nominated and then if not win to, to save Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. So I went to work and I let everyone like hold the Golden Globe and take pictures with the Golden Globe and kind of celebrated with, with everyone at work because it was, it was kind of in a way like job security for 250 people as well as myself a lot of gifts, a lot of flowers. It's great. It's overwhelming. And I was really psyched. I I, I kind of had two major awards bookending the Crazy Ex-Girlfriend experience because the Golden Globe happened in the middle of season one. It was in the middle of filming. So I had filmed, mm, not the day before, but two days before I had to go back to filming 
a day like two days after, and then I had to fly to New York. So there's all this stuff happening. And it was, it was all so soon because the show, and I talk about this in the book, the show, I thought it was a dead pilot with Showtime. And then it suddenly got ordered to series. So the whole thing was just whiplash in a way that for which I, no one could have been fully prepared and, and didn't fully sink in. It took like a year for all of it to sink in. And then the Emmy win last September, it was the opposite. I, I was done with the show. I mean, I was pregnant. So I was at home just being nauseous, sleeping a lot. And I really had the time to fully like soak it in. And that was as opposed to getting the Golden Globe for after the Hollywood Foreign Press seeing eight episodes of the show, the Golden Globe for songwriting was after writing 157 songs. So they were actually two very different experiences. But yeah, the day after is awesome. Wow. And by the way, thank you for like the layman's interpretation of how to sell a show and like the timeline of that <laughs> to, to show people like why your timeline was so different. You're like, well, here's how it was supposed to happen. And here's how it happened for me. It was like two days. So yeah, that was my pleasure. I'm still confused by the whole process. So it was good to lay it out for myself. <laughs> Do you have any advice both for authors and also for anyone who wants to get into your field of songwriting? creating, acting, all of it. I mean, people are like dying to do that. The only real advice I have is involves other people. It's find like-minded people because you want to be around people who are doing what you're doing and try to find people who are better at it than you so that you can watch them do what they do and then also get feedback on your work. I think that's where like a writing circle helps because you're around other people doing what you're doing. So you're not writing in a vacuum, you're getting feedback and it gives you a deadline. So if you're in some sort of writer's group or writing circle and you say, oh, we're all going to read aloud what we wrote on this date, or, hey, I'm going to have a table read of this screenplay I wrote. It gives you a deadline because I cannot finish anything if I don't have something holding me accountable. Even if it's a little thing, like I promised so-and-so I'd get them the script by this day. Anything you can do where you are forced to write, that is my number one tip. Okay. We'll uh, have to think of ways to, you know, bind people to their chairs and <laughs> you know, not let them have it. Yeah, because otherwise, or I mean, at least it works for me because it's the fear of letting people down. Yeah, accountability. That's like one of yeah. those Gretchen Rubin, you know, the four tendencies. Have you heard of this book? No. Oh, there's like the obligers. You're probably an obliger. Well, anyway, this is ridiculous. I'm talking about this, but there are all these different personality types and I am the same way. Like I, ha I, I try to finish everything. So I would never let anybody down. And the thought of like missing a deadline for me, is like, are you kidding? Like, of course not. So anyway, that's like one of the personality types. You should check it out. It's fun. Or you just, I will Google it or something. And, and what about getting into being, you know, a performer and a songwriter and all the rest? Well, God, there are so many ways to do it. It depends what you want to do. But I think that if you're in a place, again, where there are, I mean, there are so many hubs of entertainment now. I would, five years ago, I would have said, well, New York, LA or Chicago, but now there's Atlanta, there's Vancouver. But I think finding a place where, I think first finding a place where you have the freedom to experiment and fail mm -hmm. is really important. So that's not, not starting out online because there's no freedom to fail. Once you put something online, it's there forever. So I had a college sketch comedy group where we would do shows once a month and a sketch would bomb and then, you know, no one would ever talk about it again. Finding a safe place to stumble and realizing that you're supposed to stumble 
and you're supposed to fail at first and you're supposed to make a lot of mistakes and you'll always make mistakes. That's really important. And then as far as turning it into a career, everyone's trajectory is so different, but I, I, that's why I think the community of it all is important on multiple levels because then you start to see people get agents or sell scripts and you start to figure out how that happens depending on what avenue you want to go down. And just to circle back here to middle school is my last question. Do you ever, I mean, I know Ethan and you hung out in high school and everything, but the people that you felt sort of alienated from or who were like stuffing you in a locker or whatever else, crazy stories, you know, whatever happened to your relationship with them? Yeah, well, middle school was really, was, was really, really rough. And that was after Ethan. And I talk about in the book, one of the girls who, who was my main tormentor in middle school, she came to one of my live shows about nine years ago and she took me out for coffee after. We had a really, really vulnerable conversation about how she was just as miserable in middle school. She was afraid of losing her popularity. That's the one really vulnerable probing conversation I've had with a bully other than Ethan, because Ethan became my friend. So it almost doesn't count, even though it does, obviously. That's the one other conversation I've had. And then short of that, I posted on my Facebook around the time of this Vulture Fest. I said, hey, did you bully me in middle school or were you popular? I'd love to talk to you. And Ethan was the only one who got back to me because we were friends in high school. No actual middle school bully got back to me. And I, I like to think it's because, well, they're, they were afraid, but also I think a lot of bullies are scared, yes. But I also think a, a huge percentage of people who were bullies aren't terribly introspective people. And so they don't think a lot about the past because they, you know, a, a bad part of this country is sometimes we forget history. And I think they are those types of people a lot of times of people who just, they don't really think about stuff in context. They're just kind of living their lives, not even in a bad way. And they've matured since middle school and they've grown up, but they don't, they don't think about their past a lot. It's probably very true. Yeah. And they probably had their own stuff going on, which is why they were bullies in the first place. But yeah. And they should be in therapy yes. to talk about that and process not that it. it they probably not that haven't. it excuses it. I'm just, you know, no, they probably- no, no, no. It's just, I think it's a, it's introspective people and not. And this, this woman had been through a lot that I talked to and she was really introspective hmm. and had really looked within. And I think that's rarer for bullies. Yeah, you're right. I'm sure you're right. Well, Rachel, thank you. Thanks for taking the time. I know you have so many press obligations. So thanks for stopping in here. And I wish you all the best of luck in getting a sweater on your baby and <laughs> and all the things thank you to so come. Much. And if you do want to follow up about Child Mind, I'm happy to send you information or hook you up with the head of it there. And no pressure, just if you happen to be interested. So. Awesome. That is so great to know. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Take care. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to today's sponsor, me, <laughs> my holiday gift guide, zibbyowens.com slash gift shop. Please go check it out. Buy something for someone you love, and I promise you won't regret it. zibbyowens.com slash gift shop. Go check it out. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 